What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. If this is your first time listening, thank you. My name is Tim. I'm the creator and facilitator of the New Evangelicals. We exist primarily for the folks who have been marginalized by the evangelical church, and the podcast is designed to help people think about better ways forward in their faith, still being centered on Jesus, but not steeped in American evangelical fundamentalism. So the podcast is full of guests helping us think about this, and today is no exception. I brought on Dan Koch. He is the former member of the band Sherwood. He is a legend in my circles when it comes to podcasting. He has his own podcast called the You Have Permission Podcast. He, he by the way, will be hanging out with me and Trip Floor at uh, uh, Beer Camp in October. And he came on the show to talk about um, his work. Currently, he's getting his doctorate in psychology with an emphasis on spiritual abuse. This is a really good episode, friends. This might be thought-provoking. This might be challenging for you. And that's the point. It really is. Now, Dan definitely leans in way more in progressive spaces for sure. But he also is someone who's always thinking about how do we not become fundamentalists all over again, right? To put it in our in our own language. So um, he actually had a series on his podcast a while back called The Dangers of Progressive Christianity. Now, this is someone who is a progressive doing a series on this. So we talk about that and we just talk about what do you do when folks that that maybe are in your family or folks that are in your circles lean center right, or maybe they're right wing. How do we handle that? What do we do uh, in those situations? So Dan and I don't really see eye to eye on 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 everything. And you might hear that in the podcast, but his words were really thought provoking, especially as I reflected on them after I listened. So I really appreciate Dan coming on. That being said, as always, friends, thank you so much for your support on the show. Thank you for sharing the podcast, for telling your friends about it. We continue to grow. That means so much. If you want to support the work that we do, we are a completely donor-based organization, which means people donate to keep everything free for everyone. So if you want to be part of that work and help us make the podcast and help us uh, continue to bring guests like Dan to you, then you can click on the link in our show notes and you can donate there. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Dan Koch. I hope you enjoy it. Well, this is a fun one. Um, this is like, for me, having you on, Dan, it's kind of like, whoa, I've looked up to Dan and his podcast for a long time, and now to have him on my show means a lot, and that that's a real statement. So this is, our, this is going south so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Rough for the races, huh? Dan Koch, it is a pleasure to have you on. You are a podcast um, I think legend, at least in the circles that I run in, you have oh the gosh. You Have Permission co- uh, podcast. I've listened to many episodes. For me, the the most important one, just so you know, because I think sometimes as a podcast host, you don't always know your impact. You're like, well, I hope it's helping someone. You never know your impact <laughs> is a better way to say it. Yeah. So let me give you an impact that might make you feel good. So you okay. had on, I forgot the person's name. He was a scholar talking about homosexuality in the Bible. It was a couple years ago. It's about two hours. And he just yeah. kind of unpacked. You know, how like even if Paul's talking about homosexuality, it's not, you know, it doesn't really matter and just all these different perspectives. And that was the first time for me kind of being new in that journey of like, 
wow, I have just never considered these thoughts before. And I listened to that episode and I've shared it probably over a dozen times since wow. then. So a sincere thank you to getting that guest because it honestly, it, it was the beginning for me of me going from not being queer affirming as a Christian to me yeah. then becoming a, a queer affirming uh, Christian. Yeah, that was J.R. Daniel Kirk, or yes. as our mutual friend Trip Fuller refers to him, Daniel. Uh, you know, all these academics with their weird additional letters before things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that was episode 10. So that was over two years ago um, of You Have Permission. And it was until I had like a boost where like every episode just got significantly larger. You know, like, yeah. you know how like if your podcast grows, recent episodes will will outperform old episodes simply by virtue of being new. Totally. And there is a larger audience. So I was on like the Bible for normal people like mm. a year, a yearish ago. And that sort of bumped it up, you know, I don't know, 30% or something like that. And, but for almost two years, that was the number one episode. So wow. you and other people like you, thank you for sharing it. Uh, of course, more thanks to, to Daniel for yeah. laying out such a compelling and comprehensive um, case and uh, yeah, I, I knew I wanted to do that episode from from the beginning of starting the show, and it did not. I mean, he did not disappoint. I might have disappointed, but he didn't. <laughs> well, before we get into you know maybe kind of pretending that that that, that the audience knows you, they might not. So they I'm going to give you a few surely. minutes to uh, to introduce yourself. Uh, give us your background. What do you do? And then we'll we'll hop right into it. Yeah, I'm podcasting legend Dan Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, but uh, in terms of podcasting, I had I had two shows before you have permission. One was called Depolarize, and it was more politics stuff and, and psychology. And then I had one called Reconstruct with my buddy John Rains that sort of predated you have permission. So I've been podcasting for about six years. But before that, um, before that, I was a musician. Uh, I was a commercial composer for ten years. And before that, I was in a emo pop band called Sherwood from like 2003 to 2012. And uh, so before that, so that was, I was a philosophy major, which I mm. dropped out of school to be in Sherwood and eventually finished up, got my, got my degree, uh, my bachelor's in philosophy, which uh, for a while I thought was useless. But now that I'm getting a doctorate in psychology, I mm. actually think that that training, um, the how to think part of it uh, has been just undeniably uh, powerful. So I'm very grateful for it, even if I don't uh, retain very much information about particular philosophers or whatever. I could I can never go toe to toe with actual philosophers on that stuff. Um, but then growing up, I grew up in Northern California. I call it uh, I call it moderate California evangelicalism. Hmm. So no no real fundamentalism except. Uh, exposed to it in in doses, mostly through Christian schooling. Hmm. But our church was interdenominational, which is uh, predates non-denominational. It, it was founded as uh, three mainline denominations who banded together and hired uh, a famous architect uh, to build their chapel. And so that was in Saratoga, California. It's called okay. Saratoga Federated Church. Um, beautiful, beautiful original chapel building there, which I. I'm scheming about getting a tattoo of someday. Um, we, we've both got some, some ink here on, yes, on, we do. The, on the cameras. Uh, and yeah, so my dad was a therapist. My mom was a Christian school teacher. Um, we, you know, my mom swore they occasionally drank beer and wine. Uh, I just didn't, I just didn't have that kind of strict upbringing. I'm very grateful uh, 
hmm. for that. I think that saved me a lot. Um, but I, I did have early encounters with what I would now call spiritual abuse, hmm. primarily around uh, you know age inappropriate end times teaching exposure. Uh, essentially, wow, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, and so we can you know we can unpack that as much as you'd like to or not, but. I'm now working, uh, I'm now doing spiritual abuse research. That is my Ooh. research area as I worked on my, do- as I work on my doctorate and, you know, beyond once I'm licensed and all that stuff. So uh, that's kind of where that comes from autobiographically. We, whatever you'd like to zoom in on, we can. <laughs> well, first I want to say, um, growing up, um, I honestly didn't know. I knew of your band, and I, I actually enjoyed your music. My favorite song, I just have to say this, is the song, Song of My Head. That's a personal favorite of mine. And mm-hmm. uh, I always played it. And when, when I discovered your podcast, I'm like, oh, my God, I, I know this dude's music. So it's just a cool moment to kind of have that come full circle. Um, it is interesting to me because I, I have followed your podcast for a while. I, I've watched your episodes. I kind of want to start here, actually. And then I, I do want to head into some of that more spiritual abuse stuff. Yeah. You know, on your podcast, you have, you have a pretty wide range of, like, it seems like perspectives represented, including one episode that is titled Worries About Progressive Christianity. Now, yeah. I actually appreciate that because— That's I actually have, a series. There's okay. been, I think, three of them now. Yeah. Okay. So you've been doing yeah. this series on worries about progressive Christianity. Can you kind of maybe unpack a little bit about why you thought of this series? What do you even mean when you say progressive Christianity? Um, I, would, I would just like your thoughts on that. Yeah. So that idea came from recognizing that uh, some of my, so in terms of <clears throat> there's sort of theological uh, left-right spectrum yeah, and there is socio-political left-right spectrum. Right, and theologically, I'm—I think I'm very far left. Uh, you know, in terms of sort of doctrinal stances and stuff, I'm—I'm I'm quite far to the left. Yeah, sociopolitically, I'm more like center-left, uh, and and some days I feel like I'm almost dead center, depending on uh, what the far left is saying that day or that week. Um, and, and I've recognized that like that allows me to actually connect with people to my right. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, I sometimes interview people to my right. I sometimes interview people to my left, either theologically or sociopolitically. Um, but I wanted a space where I could engage someone more conservative mm-hmm. in good faith yeah. about the kind of stuff that worries them. And I, you know, I don't remember if it was Alyssa Childers uh, if it was her kind of explosion onto the scene, um, mm-hmm. this sort of new, I don't, it's almost like a new genre. I know you're familiar with it and have spoken with her, uh, at least privately of kind of like, um, you know, the, the, there's a, it's a little cottage industry of like anti-deconstruction, um, totally. conservatives. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is really interesting because there's obviously like these, these interviews with her are blowing up like half a million views for hour long interviews on YouTube and stuff. Right. Uh, plus her book, I think was a big hit. Yeah. Another um, gospel, another mm-hmm. gospel. Right. And, and so I thought, ah, well that's, it, first of all, it's kind of disheartening because in all those videos, like, you know, the, the distortions are you're very easy for people like you and I who have been steeped in that world for some time and have read a little bit about it to, to recognize. And I thought, well, let's do some version of that. Uh, maybe these episodes could be shared with more conservative friends and family members. Uh, but, at, but even if not, like, I just like, I like to model and, and push myself to actually uh, 
follow my own advice from the depolarized years, for instance, in, in yeah. how to build bridges. And I, I fundamentally think that um, those of us on the left tend to get people on the right wrong in the sense that we tend to think that they are bad, morally bad or stupid. Uh, and I think that that is usually wrong. And so it's great to have a, a chance to explore that and to hear people out. Uh, and so that's where the idea came from. And I mean, what are some of your thoughts so far? You're three episodes in. Um, anything that maybe has given you some pause for a legitimate, like, you know, okay, I should really consider this perspective maybe more than I thought. Um, or has, has it just kind of been eye-opening for you to realize that, like you said, maybe the the um, the caricature of people on the right being unintelligent or being just morally you know, depraved, for lack of a better term, right, isn't, isn't the case. What are some of your takeaways so far? That's a really good question. So I want to split them into sociopolitical and theological. Yes, let's do uh, that. So theologically, yeah. there's a there's it does bleed into sociopolitical, but yeah, theologically it's interesting because I personally am just not convinced by more conservative and traditional readings and takes. Yeah. Um, in terms of if you put two theologians on the unbelievable podcast and have them go at it. Like I almost always find the liberal more convincing mm -hmm. uh, nine times out of 10 right? Um, on theological grounds. Yeah. However, there's a cost to that that bleeds into sociopolitical stuff, which is that um, it seems to me, uh, and there's some research to back this up, but it's still, it's still growing. Okay. That when, when we leave these more high security, uh, more certainty focused, um, tight knit religious groups. When we leave those, we pay a cost. We pay a cost uh, in happiness, in perceived mm. meaning in life, social isolation. Mm. Um, so, so there is something really difficult and thorny and sticky yeah. about this. Where you know, I don't think that most apologetics arguments succeed, but they do bring uh, meaning and coherence to a lot of people's lives. Yep. Um, at what cost? Good question. I mean, all the, there's, you know, <laughs> right. All this right. stuff needs to be thought about and, yep. and researched more. Um, sociopolitically, I think that, you know, I don't know if it's my guests that have moved the needle for me, but um, I, I just, I'm becoming, I'm becoming increasingly convinced uh, over the last six years since Trump's election that um, the two halves of the country radically misunderstand each other and uh, hmm. some sort of middle sanity, middle ground sanity is needed. Um, and so even though policy wise, you know, I'm basically down the middle Democrat um, on most things. Uh, I, I really recognize that there are, uh, there's a lot of people talking past each other and engaging in a lot of very sloppy thinking and tribalism. And that's true on both sides. And so in that sense, I find myself pushed to the middle, if only as a placeholder <laughs> yeah. to like help people, like, can we please stop demonizing each other uh, and, and stop committing ourselves whole hog to logical fallacies and, uh, 
you know, tribal thinking. So, hmm. yeah, those Let are me, sort of separable, but they're not totally separable. Right. Okay. Let's keep going down this trail, if you don't mind, because I, mm-hmm. I, I want to explore this with you. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important for the audience, because I think most people who engage our, our podcast are probably more in that, you know, deconstruction space, for lack of a better term, more... Yep. Hey, I'm kind of going from one extreme, maybe on the path to a different kind of, I wouldn't say extreme, but just a different path away from that. Um, And I would agree with you that especially now, um, I'm not convinced legitimately by conservative takes. Like, you know, I've heard all of them. I I grew up in the, listening to the apologetics industry. I I know the the arguments. I don't find them compelling. Um, So there is that. But like you said, there is, you know, you can say progressive or, or conservative and mean two different things. On the sociopolitical stuff, that's where I want to press in because I want to give you kind of my vantage point, all right? I grew up deep in the conservative bubble. I mean, my dad was yeah. a blue-collar worker, so that means Rush Limbaugh was on all day, Sean Hannity on all day. I mean, I, I can name them all. Yeah, You, you name yeah. it, I've listened to them. Um, and, and I held a lot of those views. I got into Ben Shapiro when I was you know, a young adult, listened to his podcast, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and I think, at least for me, and I, I would love your thoughts on this, and because I, I, I am torn. Like I, I tell people a lot, you're never going to see me have a Joe Biden flag on the back of my hypothetical truck. Like it's it's, it's never going to happen, right? <laughs> I've critiqued Joe Biden. I don't yeah. like a lot of his policies. He's very much, in my mind, not not the best president. But in this particular moment in history, when you have someone who is supported by an entire industry of conservative pundits speaking on behalf of so many people, right, yeah. and making a lot of money doing it, and they're 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 talking about things that are just so next level in the political sphere. And then, and then this insurrection happens, right? And this yeah, stop the yeah. steal thing happens and, and then QAnon and all, and it, it's one big stew. Then you have the evangelical, you know, uh, for example, Charlie Kirk doing turning point faith right now, working with, with, with major evangelical leaders in their churches. Right. Yeah. Then I go, okay, I don't know if these are two sides of the same coin anymore. Right. And, and, and that's where I get torn because I can't think about, um, a, a popular, popularized far left that has the kind of clout and is advocating for, I don't know, communism, I guess. I mean, that, 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 that really gets that kind of traction compared to the Matt Walsh's, the Ben Shapiro's, the Candace Owens. Oh, yeah. So yeah. walk me through that. I mean, how do you navigate that? Because I, mm-hmm. I don't see two sides at this moment. Not saying mm-hmm. that there aren't, but I just see one side and it's scaring the hell out of me, frankly. Yeah. So if we, if we well, first of all, let me just say that whole, uh, you know, military industrial, I don't know what you want to call it, infotainment industrial complex on the right yeah. uh, is, I mean, I think morally sickening, morally absurd, um, and is the single greatest threat to our country and democracy right now. So let me mm. be very clear about that. Mm. Uh, if I'm equivocating between right and left, I'm not equivocating in uh, the power between the two groups. There is nothing like that on the left in terms of reach and whatnot. Uh, but what we still do have yeah. is that everybody votes every two years for na- for national issues. Yeah. And we do have the two sides, which are basically represented in the popular media and then people make their decision. Yeah. So it's true that, you know, call it 30% maybe of the country is, th- is pretty thoroughly in thrall, maybe 35% right. to that in- infotainment right wing bullshit. And there's nothing to be done about those people hmm. as individuals. Our podcast will never reach them. <laughs> right. uh, the people who like us don't agree with them. Okay. Right. But there's another 30%, hmm. maybe in the middle, hmm. that are neither uh, 
always going to go left or always going to go right. And so what I am, my orientation is always, those are the persuadable people. And, uh, you know, there are some people who are unpersuadable. Great. Ignore that. If you're trying to persuade, that's a waste of effort. Right. But how do we persuade the people who are persuadable and how do we come up with policies ultimately that advance the greater good? Some people think what you should do in a moment like this, where there is unique moral rot on the right, which I think there is. Some people say, ignore the right. Uh, What we need to do is get all the, all the um, non-complicit thinkers together. And, and that's where we'll come up with the best ideas. Yeah. I think that that's a plausible worldview. Hmm. I don't, I think that it is psychologically naive and that what you need is you need to engage people who have genuine conservative temperaments uh, and approaches to the world. Now, those people right now with genuine conservative temperaments are either never Trump conservatives and yes. they are living into their, into their authentic selves and beliefs, or they are momentary or lifelong sellouts to the right-wing infotainment moral rot. So I don't think we need to bring Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro in. <laughs> Right, uh, but I would love to bring in David French, David Frum, Andrew Sullivan, right, right. Uh, folks like this um, who are like, "Look, I'm a conservative. I'm sorry, that is who I am. I think there are good arguments for it. I hate Trump, uh, but like, what we do, what we often do, is we lump all those people together because of the massive power of this particular moment on the right. Um, but actually, those are the people who will help us figure out how to reach." half of that middle 30% that is persuadable Hmm. and keep us from losing our half of that 30%. So the 15 that are left leaning, but for instance, don't want no police departments. Uh, They might be for trans accommodations, but they don't want their daughter to be competing against formerly biological male athletes, you know, and they don't want their kids to be taught that, Gender and sex are both entirely social constructs with no biological basis. Now, I'm not saying that they will get taught that. (laughs) I'm just saying that what they perceive, if they perceive that a vote for Democrats is a vote for radical non-genderism or something like that, then that 15% who was with us will, some chunk of them will break off. And then the, the stakes of that are possibly catastrophic for our democracy, possibly not. I guess we'll, we'll have to just wait and see. But if, if Trump were to win or if enough Republicans, you know, literally do have vote fraud, I mean, who knows what will happen? I don't know. But while, Trump's, while Trump is a real threat or someone like Trump, my sort of cards on the table sociopolitical goal yeah. is ensure that those people don't have too much power. Right. We kind of got we kind of got through 4 years of Trump by the skin of our teeth yeah. with a ton of damage and wreckage behind him. Right. And and so at this moment uh there I mean I could say more, 
about sort of the psychology of it if you want, but maybe I'll just give you a minute to respond to that because that was a long response. Well, that's why I have guests on the podcast to share their long responses. I mean, you yeah. know, long form content I think is is where the real work is done, right? We, we I, yeah. I can do a 60 second reel, a hot take, a hot tweet, but the real work is done in these kinds of dialogues because they are complicated. I mean, regardless of what we think, these things are very complicated. Um, and I, I think that you bring up some points that we should be considering, right? Especially the perception of, hey, if, if for example, this Matt Walsh infotainment industry is so effective at convincing that, that 15% that, hey, Democrats want to radicalize your kids, whether mm-hmm. it's true or not isn't the point because that's just taking away from the reality of what might, might or might not be happening, so to speak, you know? Um, well, and but it, I think it's <clears throat> the more dangerous thing is not how Matt Walsh might spin something or Tucker Carlson might spin something. The more dangerous thing is when the democratic leaders, debate partners, politicians uh, say things that can be straightforwardly played back that sound like that. Right. It's like message discipline, really. Like we, we live, uh, you know, it's a very, very dangerous. um, uh, What's the word? Not dangerous. It's, uh, it's an eggshell moment media wise Hmm. because you just, you have to be so on um, on message all the time. I mean, we've seen this twice now with Biden and Russia and China where he's kind of let things slip out that seem to contradict our military policy. (laughs) Right. Like like, I I referring to, you know, we're recording this in the end of May and and Biden just made a comment about um, Taiwan and China, right. And not being afraid of military intervention. And then the department had to kind of walk it back. Like, well, we didn't mean it like that. Is that an example Mm -hmm. of that? Yes. And then before, and then a few months ago with Putin, he said, you know, he's got to go. And that sounded like regime change, which is not our policy. And there are very good sort of avoiding nuclear war reasons for that to be (laughs) not our policy. And so the, you know, He's he's getting a little sloppy with that stuff. Now, the Taiwan thing seems like might be a bit more on purpose, but the Putin comment uh, appears to definitely have not been on purpose right? and, and not part of a plan. Right. So now, of course, we don't know that for sure. But but it's an example of what I'm talking about. Like, um, you know, I, I don't follow politics all that closely. I'm more interested in the psychology of it. Um, and. So that's what I tend to ask people about. Or, yeah, well, I think that, I think that's important because I mean, a you're studying that, you're getting your PhD. That's important, you know, to recognize. You're obviously fascinated about this. I think we should maybe at least skim the surface of this conversation because I'll, I'll use myself as an example, right? I mean, yeah. when I think about right now, when I think about okay, the next election, let's just say it's Trump and I hope not Biden. But let's say it is Biden. Yeah. You know, I, I go, okay. I also mind, hope not Biden. Right, right. Or yeah. Trump, frankly. Um, well, definitely I, hope it's not Trump. Um, yeah. I think to myself, like, okay, on one hand, I think that, like, things that maybe Christians should be advocating for, like, I don't know, affordable health care in the world's richest country, um, yeah. a livable wage, right, from, from yeah. massive companies that are profiting billions, is, mm-hmm. like, not a crazy idea. These are not radical ideas, right? And mm-hmm. I think of those two in particular, and I think, okay, well, <clears throat> in my experience— I've seen more people on the Republican side dismiss those things, and I've seen more people on the Democrat side enable those things. And so even though I don't want to call myself a Democrat in this moment or even pull the lever for Biden, 
I feel mm-hmm. like like when push comes to shove, I'm compelled to because can we survive some of the other talk about about police and I think we can, um, yeah. but I don't think our country, especially you know the middle class that's eroding, can survive any more stagnant wages or or going ban- literally in some cases bankrupt over their health care. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you're familiar, but a recent Oxfam study just came out and they found that in the BIPOC community and in the single parent community. Um, they have found that half of those workers in America make under $15 an hour. I mean, that is just batshit crazy to me. And 100%. when you talk, and when you talk about, I mean, I used to work for Apple. Okay. When you talk about, Hey, Apple is setting record, uh, record profits and still not paying their employees fairly. What I hear a lot of times from people on the right, just for lack of a better term is, well, you're a socialist then you, what, you know, Tim, how much should they make $400 an hour? It's like, that's not, that's not what we're saying. Right. So, yeah. so with that in mind, Speak to it, psycho- you know, on, on a psychological level. Like, what what is contributing to this? How can we break free? Are there better paths forward than being stuck in the "I'm going to not vote for Trump, therefore I'll vote for Biden," even though he doesn't really represent me almost at all, besides two or three issues? Is there a way forward from that? One one thing is, I think that we underestimate how. I think for most Americans, other than those like. You know, with Trump, there's a unique cult of personality. Totally. Yeah, but it's good. But generally speaking, most people are fairly unsatisfied with their presidential vote. Hmm. I think that that's actually totally normal. Hmm. Two parties means uh, that neither of them probably are going to really represent all your views about the complexities of political life. Hmm. I mean, I... I am not in that 30% persuadable category. Like I am not persuadable by, by the Republicans at the moment. Hmm. They, uh, they would have to do a few things. They would need to repudiate Donald Trump and Trumpism. They would need to come up with a serious climate change plan and they would need to come to the table with something serious economic healthcare wise for working class people. Now right. I do not anticipate that any of those things will happen in the next 10 years. Right. If they do, then I'm persuadable right. in theory. Right. Uh, but you know, a lot of people, um, you know, the big mystery is how has the democratic party lost the white working class and why are they also now losing some of the non-white working class? Uh, it should be, our, that should be our bread and butter. And um, I am fairly persuaded by folks who say a doubling down on culture war and identity politics issues uh, are part of the explanation there. That, um, you know, and, and you could see one example of that of like, okay, if, if this community has been reduced to rubble and opioid uh, overdoses because all the yeah. factory jobs left and went to China, the, the, the international cosmopolitan globalists are not going to be the ones that we identify with the most. Um, like that's, that's a plausible explanation, right? And there's, there are other explanations, but I don't, it, it, to me, I'm not talking about what is true, what would be most just in our country. I'm talking about how do we persuade the middle 30% to not uh, elect stop the steal candidates. Like right. that's what I'm talking about. So right, right. I, I, I think I often get pegged by friends and, and people 
in our community to my left as like some sort of soft sympathizer or whatever or whatever. I'm just trying to like politically, I'm just trying to keep them from winning. Uh, that is my goal. It, we are in a, an emergency moment. And after if Trumpism dies a natural death or, or some less natural death with, you know, God forbid, a bunch of bloodshed or something, um, you know, then we'll be in a different position. But this right. is the position that we're in. And I'm trying to be realistic about it. Um, and and I think that a further argument is that many of my leftward friends, I think, are psychologically naive uh, and and don't realize when they're being tribalistic. Mm. And so that's kind of the unique angle in my mind to, to go beyond just the politics of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, so we often say in our community, like we don't want to become fundamentalists all over again. That's kind of like our little uh, slogan, right? You say it. And yet, <laughs> well, we are prone to it, right? Well, because yes. the brain structures are the same. We're not, we're not rewiring our brains overnight. You can't do that. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. So let me ask you this and kind of get your thoughts. And let me give you an example of when I think in my head, well, if that's fundamentalism, sign me up, right? I think about mm -hmm. like looking back on, on our country's horrible history of racism in America, right? Yeah. Jim Crow laws, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, race-based child slavery. And I go, wow, you know, the people back then who were the extremes, you know, the ones who, like mm -hmm. Martin Luther King, right? He was seen as a communist. We, we look back at him now and we go, okay, you know, maybe he wasn't that... Oh, Can I jump in here really briefly, though? So yes. go ahead. one thing that we do, and I've just seen this this last week on Twitter, yeah. we collapse the entire civil rights movement into one thing. And we say, well, they were seen as extremists. And that's true if okay. we take the entire category. Mm. But within that diverse group of activists and whatever, ultimately, MLK and his ilk, they won. They were seen and pegged as extremists. The FBI and CIA did follow his, I guess it was more the FBI in those years, um, did wiretap him, have cases against him, treat him like uh, a, a persona non grata and a danger to society. But ultimately, uh, he won. We got the Civil Rights Act passed. We got the Voting Rights Act passed. And he did that with LBJ. And uh, the Malcolm X wing, you know, people debate, what, you know, broadly speaking, Stokely Carmichael, Michael, Malcolm X, people can debate sort of how much um, influence each, each wing had on each other. And I'm not the scholar to, uh, to, to argue with that. I don't know enough about it, but um, we can't pretend like the average American saw MLK and Malcolm X indistinguishable in their minds at the time. They were not, they were distinguishable and one was militant and black Panthers and all that stuff. And I know that there's a lot of stuff black Panthers did. Now we can look back and go, ah, oh, they were really community-based, whatever. But in terms of their messaging, they were seen as distinct and the moderate side won and got a bunch of stuff done. And so I don't think it's fair to say, well, if caring about the civil rights movement makes me a fundamentalist, then I'll be a fundamentalist. You don't have to be a fundamentalist to care about the civil rights movement. MLK wasn't a fundamentalist. He was like a biblically based, like standard uh, black Southern preacher in his approach, winsome, persuaded people. And he fucking succeeded. It cost him his life, but he succeeded. And our nation is the better for it. Yes. My, my point though, is that 
he was still a fundamentalist in the sense of black equality, black equity. Like there yeah, was just, a line where he I said, I wouldn't call that. I, I just wouldn't call that fundamentalism. Well, and, and I, that's not the way sure. I'm talking about it anyway. Right. Fair enough. But okay. I, I'm just trying to make the point that like in my head, sometimes I think about, well, like, like what are my non-negotiables? I'll put it that way. Right. Yeah. And I think about maybe queer inclusion. Right. And I think about how the mm-hmm. church has handled the queer inclusion conversation and community. Yeah. And I go, okay, if my baseline Forget maybe how people in the circles want to incorporate queer inclusion. But if my baseline is the queer community should be allowed and should be accepted in church and yeah. people go, oh, that's far left progressive thought. I go, well, yeah. if that, right. But that, if that's what you're yeah. going to label me, then that it is what it is because I'm not going to, I'm not going to budge on that topic of queer inclusion. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so Same that's here. what I'm, that, right. yeah. so that's what I'm talking about is like, it's like there are, there are, how do we have foundational, Hey, this is a non-negotiable. Right, without coming across to, to maybe people who think that this that is a far left idea, even though it's really not. Right, what do we do with that? That that's what I'm trying to get to. Does that make yeah. sense? Yes, it does. So your idea of a non-negotiable, uh, I think, is great, and I don't. And I, I so I want to be very clear. If I if I accuse someone in you know the abstract yeah. of leaving one fundamentalism for another, right, it is not because they are taking moral stance. I mean. The never Trumpers take moral stands. They have non-negotiables. Right. Uh, you know, it's been really interesting to to see David French and Russell Moore, for instance, write about this emerging yep. Southern Baptist Convention yep. um, report that just came out a couple of days ago. Right. So moral stands are great. Uh, I personally will will never attend a church again that is non queer affirming right. uh, and does not ordain women. That is a that's a non-negotiable for me. Right. What what I'm talking about when I'm talking about leaving one fundamental fundamentalism for another is keeping the basic structures of we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, we are morally um, righteous, they are morally bankrupt, we uh, see the world clearly, they see the world in a distorted way, and we we were grown we were raised with that, especially the more fundamentalist we are. There's a lot of yeah. uh, tons of fear. Uh, fear mongering about the other side, demonizing them, whatever, uh, you know, circling the wagons, rallying around the flag. And we're just going to repeat that. Like, uh, because we, we figured out that, oh, they're the good guys and we were the bad guys, but all the rest of the game is the same. Um, you know, it's possible, but I think there's really compelling reasons that both of those views are impoverished and naive. Um, and they, and they take part in, you know, all kinds of there's there's really, really good psychological research on this. All the cognitive distortions that human beings tend to engage in, all the sort of evolved tribal tendencies that we had to, to be able to keep our up to 200 person band of humans alive for fucking a million years <laughs> before <laughs> agriculture. I mean, right. You know, this stuff goes deep. It yes. is not our fault. I'm not saying that people are are morally uh, bad for engaging in psychological tribalism. They are normal for right. engaging in that. But what are we, what is our true north? Right. On our yes. best day, are we going to settle for that? Or are we going to try for something better, healthier, more accurate, more reality-based? That's what I'm hoping for in for my own self and 
listeners. So let me say that I 100% agree with you. I mean, you know, a, a core value that New Evangelicals has is that we don't dehumanize people we don't like. You know, you're never going to look back at, at a video of us critiquing Sean Foyt and calling him ramen head or something like that. We just don't do yeah. that, right? I think it's such low blows for so many reasons. And so we Love make, a, we make yeah. a very intentional point of, of non-dehumanization, right? Because regardless of my thoughts about Trump and how dangerous I think he is, he's still made in the image of God, in my view, and he's still a fully you know, formed human being. Right. Um, so depending I, on how you define fully formed, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough, but you get the point. He, he has the Imago day. What he's done with that is exactly, you know, but if, but also what's been done to him, his dad was an asshole. Sounds like, I mean, you know, ahead, yeah. training in psychology is very helpful here because your clients walk in the door and you don't just blame them for all their shit immediately. Right. You have to get curious right. and compassionate and understand where they came from. I think it's thoroughly resonant with a Christian approach to understanding and loving people. Uh, and it's been, it continues to be transformative for me and, and very difficult and is constantly pushing me and, you know, all that. Well, to be fair, you know, I've considered that myself, you know, like Trump, we'll use Trump as an example. He's a very volatile figure for a lot of reasons, right? You know, rightly so in a lot of ways. But like you said, how did he grow up? How was he taught? Was was he at one point in his life bullied as a kid? And this is like, you know, a, right. a, I guess a trauma response. I don't know. Um, yeah. But but my question to you is, okay, so again, I agree with you. I'm with you. He on, all, but he should have no power, right? <laughs> we like, all agree. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. No, 100%. My question is, when when there is this this moment of um okay let's use bob jones for example okay bob jones he founded bob jones university i've read his sermons they are horrible they are racist he claims to stand mm-hmm. on the word, word of god etc right in that moment right if, if we were around when bob jones was big pushing for why segregation is god ordained right how do you engage that in a way that that you're talking about where like we need better pass forward without dehumanizing, but also standing firm with people saying, no, Bob, this is actually harming people. That's my rub, right? Because I feel the people that we engage, Dan, to be frank with you, they're mostly women. They're most a lot of them have have horrible stories of abuse. Um, we, yeah. we engage a lot with the queer community. I hear we've gotten over 10,000 DMs the past year or more. I've read wow. their stories, okay? And when you get story after story of my pastor or my leader or this, you know, you, you, it's, it is hard for me at times not to just want to dehumanize them, right? Yep. And so it's like, well, I have to take a stand. I have to say as an organization, we're not going to back down from queer inclusion. We're not going to back down from, from, from elevating the voice of survivors. But how do we do that in a way that convinces the perpetrators of that victimization to rethink their own you know, views to, to, to move towards healing themselves? That's where 100%. I'm stuck. Yep. Help me. <laughs> uh, here's a very non-sexy answer. And I'm okay. going to take it. I'm going to take it straight from Jonathan Haidt. He says, if you want to get gun control passed, who do you choose as your spokesperson? Who do you put in the press conference on the video? Do you choose Meryl Streep? Do you choose Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio to convince, uh, you know, 2A folks that there needs to be reasonable gun control? No, you find a retired NFL head coach with three Super Bowl rings. You find a retired five-star general. That is who you want talking about gun control because that is the person who can reach the people you need to persuade in order to get it passed. And so it's not about your, in in this sense, for, for something like this, it isn't about 
your fundamental commitments as a community. It's about persuasion. And it's about the unsexy work of just finding the right messenger and message to get it done. Mm. So when, when, um, when spiritual domestic violence, sexual abuse uh, survivors come to your community, uh, you're doing, as far as I can tell, exactly what you should do. Mm. If you got on the unbelievable podcast and were debating somebody and you only spoke in a way that those survivors would feel, you know, like, I don't know exactly how you want to parse this, but you'd be making decisions on how you framed things. Right. Right. And, And in that space where there are plenty of conservative people who listen to that, you gotta have a different tack. You have to speak to them. Maybe you and I are not the people who should do that episode. Maybe we should have Karen Swallow Pryor do that episode. Right. You know what I mean? Like totally. that's sort of more what I'm saying. It's mm. um and and advocating for victims, having trauma-informed practices, these are focused on survivors. These are absolutely fundamental. That's the best evidence we have to help those people heal. Yeah. Uh and, and these are the people I will be working with for the rest of my clinical career, right? Um, when we're doing public sphere persuasion, we're just doing something else. And in that public sphere, I mean, look, if David French and Russell Moore can unequivocally stand beside survivors and victims, even where they're sitting, then that's not like a toxic issue. I actually think that's a winning issue to separate out the morality, just politically. Yeah, It's sort of like when MLK and his uh, group doubled down and, and it, the, the gay rights, gay marriage um, movement took a page here. They said, we just want to be treated the same as you. Right. We want the same thing you have. Right. That is a winning argument. Right. Because people go, oh, you're not trying to take something away from me and give it to you. You want the same thing. Right. Now, I recognize the mathematical argument that that's not going to equal out. I know. That's not my point. My yeah. point is, how do you get the next thing passed? Right. You make winsome, persuasive arguments that build on basic human agreement. Um, and you don't say, well, like, like, let me just contrast it with another way. So, so let me show you what I'm not talking about. Sure. A non-reflective person who goes on unbelievable podcasts, for instance, that's just our world, right? Yep. Might think, not necessarily think, they might sort of subconsciously decide that what's most important to them is to win accolades from the choir on their side of the issue. And right. so they will talk in a way that maximizes activist and and more radical thinker support, uh, raising their own stock uh, in that community, maybe giving themselves a better living, maybe not, depending on the situation, uh, certainly giving themselves more social clout in their circles. Um, And this is exactly what fucking politicians on the right are doing right now. They don't want to be outflanked on the right. And so they are doubling down, tripling down on the most ludicrous claims Right. Uh, of, right. Of voter fraud, the great replacement shit. Right. You know, so are we going to do the same thing? Right. We're just going to flip it around. Like, do we think that the only reason that's wrong is that those are morally wrong stances? Right. Some people would say that. Yeah. But I would say also the reason it's wrong is that it is 
psychologically immature and naive. And, and those candidates who are outright flanking each other are going to do poorly in general elections. Like, uh, that's the nice thing <laughs> from my perspective is a lot of those people are going to lose to moderate Democrats. So it's like, it's a naivety and it is a, and it is sometimes an unwillingness to, to look at what, what our own incentives are. And are we playing like, cause if, cause if what I do is give a bunch of pious, uh, talking points, pious defined by whatever your community is. Right. And if ultimately what I do is, enlarge my own Twitter followership and uh, membership in the club. And I de-persuade a bunch of people. Am I, am I hurting or harming the community I'm supposedly advocating for? Right. I don't know. Jury's out. Right. I don't want to be, I want to help them. I don't want to harm them for my own personal gain. Right. So, but again, if you're just in the room with a survivor, none of this is at play. Right. I'm talking about public persuasion. Right. Public persuasion. That's right. what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a question I asked, right? How do we get people to maybe be persuaded um, if our only tactic is to play the same game of dehumanization and, you know, you suck and you're a piece of shit and uh, come to our yep. side? Isn't it great? It's like, no, it's not great. I mean, I, you know, I, right. I, even when I was younger, I'd always say, like, I can't think of any time in my life where someone was like argued into being a Christian. Like, I can't think of any time where I saw like, wow, I'm now convinced like your love for Jesus is so convincing after you Ray comforted me, you know, living water ministries of, well, by right. God's standard, you're a horrible, evil piece of shit. You want right. to get saved? It's like, no, who wants to get saved with that right. kind of rhetoric? It's, it, it's the same kind of idea is, is what I'm picking up on here is, is what you're saying. Like, like those honey tactics, versus vinegar. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Honey versus vinegar. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Wow. 46 minutes. My God, this stuff is fascinating time flies when you're having when you're having <laughs> i mean these are important conversations right like like especially oh, my mic here there we go especially when it comes to this like deconstruction explosion that's that's the term i use for it yeah people, i like that uh, term yeah because you know people will say oh the movement like there is no movement people are going in no. different directions they're going to land in different places there is um a pretty big center of where it's coming from <laughs> You know, in a lot of ways, but but really, this is not a movement. But there is this thing happening um, in predominantly white evangelical spaces. Definitely some other places too. There's been some some of this in the Mormon community and also yeah. in, in in black evangelical spaces. Yeah. But I'm kind of curious. You know, like, well, I was going to say that I, I think this conversation is so important because so many of us, for the first time, feel like we're breathing on our own. Right? Like, oh my yeah. gosh, I can I can think about these things. Uh, aside from like the Sean McDowell, like talking point. Right. And, and the analogy yep. we use is that we see this work, like, like, a, like a house, like the Christian tradition is a massive house. And for people like myself, I was born in the basement and told this is all there is. And as I walk out of those, yeah. ste- you know, up those steps for the first time and people are screaming, if you do this, you're going to become a heretic. There's no Christianity on, on the other side. I'm opening the door and going, not only is there Christianity on the other side, it's way more robust and beautiful and complicated than this like dusty old basement I was a part of, right? Yeah. And so a lot of people are kind of thinking about these things in in for them new ways. Um, and I think it's important that you I'm I, I'm really glad you said what you said because I know a lot of us wrestle with this. A lot of us feel the tension of I don't I, I can only rely on my training, so to speak, right? So when I get when I get triggered or pushed, what comes out? Well, what I, how I was taught to respond, which is dehumanization, otherness, um, you know, and drawing lines in the sand. And yep. certainly we want to have values that we do say, hey, if you want to be a part of our community, here are the boundaries. However, 
we want to be able to engage in good faith dialogue wherever possible uh, and, and, and hopes of, of persuasion of a better way forward that isn't just what we came from. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think that any of us should be able to point to moments in our own journey, however many years yes. or months you need to go back, where someone who you now consider a trustworthy source, yeah. you did not then. Totally. And who was your trustworthy source? So, like, I think for a lot of us, we were open to Greg Boyd. Uh, so maybe, maybe for some people, Tim Keller was right. their first step leftward. And then Greg Boyd. Okay. And now we're kind of, okay, what about all this violence? Okay. Then Pete ends. Yeah. Okay. And then, and now we're like Megan DeFranzia. Uh, let's talk about, you know, intersex theology, you know, but you, we should, we, I think a lot of us literally forget the process that we had to go through. I agree. You know, and, totally. and uh, James K. A. Smith, uh, I was at a conference once where he, he was answering a listener question about this in a way I found really helpful. And he said to, to the guy who asked him, he's like, look, I can persuade people two clicks to my right and two clicks to my left. Obviously that's a, you know, it's a left, right as a oversimplification, but two clicks away from where I'm at, but right. you might be two clicks to my right and you can influence people four clicks from right. me, but right. I can't get them, but you can. And that is just how people are. That is the way that we change. That's the way we become persuaded. It is primarily how we change our beliefs is that we change, well, things happen to us, but we have to find new avatars, new individual people, whether we know them personally or not, that we can feel secure making our intellectual lives look closer to theirs. And we look up to people and we find them reasonable. We find them something we want to emulate. We do this all, by the way, totally unconsciously. Uh, and we all do it. So yeah, that's I, a great point. There's a naive, there's a naivety that pretends we didn't have that process. Right. And those of us who've gone through deconstruction, we should know better than anyone. Totally. Um, and so, you know, it's yeah. No, uh, you're on the money. Yeah. You're, you're on, you're on the money. I thought about it often in my own life. Like, wow, if it wasn't for this conversation, even on Facebook with someone being charitable to me when I wasn't queer affirming and this queer person was charitable to me. I mean, th those yeah. are some of the moments that I look back on that that started to plant seeds that eventually shifted my perspective, right? Um, and, and, you know, it's tough, man. I'm just being honest. Like, it's tough in, in like a clickbait, you know, hot take world uh, to always have those those conversations the right way, which is why I'm in my DMs so much having these conversations because audio oh, yeah. messages are my friend. You know, I, I love audio messaging people because it really brings the, the temperature down. I've had people in my, my DMs, you're a heretic, you're a, per, you know, whatever it is. I, I just DM them with my voice. Hey, my name's Tim, human being over here, willing to engage. I mean, nine times out of 10 has worked. And usually I get an apology. Wow. Hey, sorry, I yeah. came in hot. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's the internet. I have thick skin. Um, but, you know, that, that I noticed that kind of, when they hear a voice, when they see a person, right, and not just text, not just a story take, not just mm -hmm. a video, um, it really, and, and the same goes for me too. I mean, you know, I, when, when I met with, with Elisa, um, Elisa Childers and Tim Barnett, um, having that in-person conversation, we talked for almost two hours, you know, privately. And it was, at the time, I thought a really great conversation. Now, looking back and seeing how they're responding to some stuff, I'm not sure if I'm super thrilled about it. But the point mm -hmm. is that, you know, in that moment, they were respectful, they were cordial, I was respectful, we were open to dialogue. And so that that human connection really helps to smooth out so many of these, you know, moments of, this this tweet 
I'm triggered. You're a piece of shit. You know, that kind of response that we see often. Yeah. And I think that Jonathan Haidt's recent article and his work around social media, he had a big Atlantic article called why the last 10 years have been uniquely stupid. Oh yes. Yes. And he, and he points to, you know, particular uh, developments in social media, the, the retweet button um, is like a big one on Twitter. And then there's share button on Facebook, which shortly followed it. Right. And that basically the, the mechanisms underlying our social media interactions can be a lot of the blame can be laid there. A lot of the explanation can be laid there for why uh, the, why your audio voice and direct communication is so much better and amenable to conversation, charitable disagreement, persuasion, than are the, the main tools of our social media discourse, right. which where the algorithm, um, every, all the incentives Yes. Are to be yes. maximally uh, hot take, <laughs> right. uh, you know, inflame right. something. You'll right. get more likes and more clicks, more followers, more money, more clout, social status, whatever the thing is, by doing it wrong. Right. right. <laughs> by basically right. doing it in a non Christ like way, in a non human way, in a non compassionate way. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like we have changed the evolutionary playing field so that the fittest are doing the worst work. Yeah. And so totally. something totally. has to change there. And we, we have to either exempt ourselves from it, use the tools against it in some way. Yeah. Um, but it's not clear. I mean, cause you can't, you're like, if you or I posts a video giving a nuanced and humanizing take, uh, it will just not do as well. So like we don't, (laughs) uh, our hands are somewhat tied. People have to opt in to our nuanced takes. Right. Uh, When they've become fed up, maybe somebody will introduce some legislation. I mean, I don't know. Um, That actually forces these platforms to make those changes. I don't know. I mean, it's a a bleak, pessimistic picture for the moment, Um, but you can imagine uh, other ways forward. In the meantime, I don't want to be a fucking pawn in the hands of these tech billionaires to ruin my country and alienate people who I would otherwise be able to have a conversation with so that they can get uh, another Aston Martin and add another floor onto their fucking mansion. So I'm not going to be that guy. Right. Um, But I see a lot of people who I really like and even agree with willing to be that person and take the short term bump in status or popularity. Maybe they don't even realize they're doing that. A more charitable view is, I mean, they just think they're reaching people and the numbers seem to show it. Well, I I mean, I think we know enough now about these algorithms to to be a little skeptical that rising numbers means you're doing something effective. Right. No, I agree. I mean, yeah, we started New Evangelicals on Instagram. I started it about a year and a half ago. December 2020 was when, or yeah, 2020 was when I launched it. And, you know, in the beginning, we had like really quick growth, like numerically, you know, and I remember thinking like, wow, this is great. This is awesome. And then one day, I guess Instagram changed something. It just like stopped, you know, hmm. and like I had major anxiety and I, I, I had to think to myself, I had to yeah. go, Tim, what is causing this response that a number on a screen is making mm-hmm. you feel like you're inadequate, like your work wasn't enough, like you're not helping people. Um, and I, it was a moment for me where I had to connect it to, oh my God, like this is a product of my capitalist society and also my church upbringing that more numbers yes. And, yes. and more people 
right, is the metric for success. And it's not engagement. It's not It's not individual impact. It's not even the networks that you're building that, 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 that you don't even know about, right? It's the people right. who met each other through maybe through our platform that I'll never meet, but they're now good friends. And it's honestly, it's still at times a wrestling point for me. There are days where I look at my, you know, the follower count. Like, oh, I lost 10 followers. Oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, but I like, do it too. I, yep. I have, I have yeah. to fight that urge, but you're right. Like these systems and what was it? Uh, the social dilemma, the the documentary on Netflix, right. I think. Yep. And, and the, the one guy who used to be at one of these companies says, you're going to, you know, he essentially says like, like you cannot win against exactly. not feeling that way. Like it's an yep. uphill battle. It is playing into biology. It's playing into human nature. And, and, and to think that somehow you're, you're bigger than the algorithm is really a fool's errand, you know? Yep. Um, and so you're right. I, I think it's a very under talked about ingredient among other things. I would also argue that talk radio has been a major ingredient over the years, but in, in uh, for, yes. for me as, as a millennial, right? I think social media is a very under realized problem that is only turning the gas up. It's not turning the gas down. It, it's, not even let, it's not even letting us cook. It's trying to set the whole kitchen on fire. Yep. <laughs> and, and whoever can set it on yep. fire the most wins. I mean, that, that, that's the game we're playing. I mean, 24-hour news and talk radio yeah. were yeah. bigger, were massive sources of some of this polarization and other negative social change, mostly for our parents. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I never really got into talk radio. I mean, maybe, maybe you did. I don't know. Other people oh, I did. have. I, I never really did. I never really got into 24 hour news cycle stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I'm on social media. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm 38 and yep, yep, um, yep. I'm that age, right? And I'm thinking Gen Z and younger millennials, um, even less and less terrestrial radio and cable news bound, right? So totally. more uh, dependent on social media for information and news coverage. So, yeah, I mean, you're, I think you're, I think you're totally right, dude. Uh, and you can't like, we can give ourselves a little bit of grace in terms of trying to fight the algorithm and what it does to us because billions and billions of dollars have been spent by these companies and venture right. capitalist firms to find and fine tune the ways that they can capture our attention for the longest. Totally. And so you, and whatever they're finding is based in, you know, general human psychology, like right. that you can't, we don't, we can't change that part of our programming. We can change the platforms and we have to do that probably through legislation. Um, and I hope that that will happen. But in the meantime, yeah, dude, I mean, I look at the podcast download numbers and I get dismayed or elated and, right. you know, yeah. it's uh, extremes, right? <laughs> but, but this is yeah. one of the reasons I don't think it's the only reason. And I don't mean to play. Um, I don't mean to pretend to be like pious here or whatever, but I have been, I have been very curious to sort of ask you about what formats you choose to, to use and why. Like, I feel like every time I open my Instagram app, Every second or third time, the top post is you looking at the camera with your beard and a Silent Planet t-shirt uh, <laughs> telling me about some recent scandal, Yeah, right? And, yeah. and I often, like, I generally find your analysis to be accurate. Um, I don't, like, uh, I haven't unfollowed you. <laughs> that way. And I would have if I thought that you were like, oh, he's making things worse. You know, I, I don't think that. Not that what I think matters. But, um, but I do think, like, man such an interesting choice that like, and why am I not at all compelled to try to do those things? I, I do flirt with ideas occasionally, but 
uh, I'm I stick to the long form thing. Part of me doesn't want doesn't like public controversy, and even if someone disagrees with me, like they're not going to listen to a ninety minute episode to find the part that they disagree with. They might look at a tweet or a TikTok video. Right, right. So I'm I'm so curious, like how you think about the because you are engaged in uh, I mean actually just far more um, formats than I am. You've yeah. got your Zoom groups, book studies. Yeah. Uh, you you're in your DMs talking to people one on one a lot more than I am. You do these short videos and then you do long form podcasts. And I'm so curious, like how you think about those those different formats, especially the max algorithm stuff. That's yeah. the stuff I'm most curious about. I, you know, yeah, you know, it's really interesting because, um, I think about those things too, frankly, I really do. And I, I'm great. I'm, I'm privileged enough to have people who support the work that we do. So I can really devote a lot of hours to this. Yeah. So responding to a DM isn't a big deal. It takes 30 seconds. Of course, when you have a few hundred of them, they can add up, but you find time. Yeah. Um, so the way that we, so first off, I should say that we have 16 volunteers who work with us and a few of them manage our, our Zoom groups. So I don't really do much of our Zoom groups besides the, I'll find someone to do Theology 101 group. Um, and I also do, um, you know, like, like the podcast, obviously. I honestly love, I've, I'm sure you can tell, conversation. I just love yeah. getting to know people. I love kind of, you know, um, who is it? Uh, Peter Rollins in his book, Insurrection, says every pe- person has a universe inside of them. I'm like, oh, I fucking love that. You know, like mm, what's yeah. the universe inside Dan? Like what makes him tick? It's just fun for me. And also, I'm really interested in good faith dialogue. That's why I've had Russell Moore on the podcast. I've had Samuel Duthon from Awakened Church, a far-right anti-masker at the insurrection. I mean, I have these dialogues. What I've realized is we used to, if you look through our Instagram, our old posts, they used to be all text. They were screenshots of tweets. They were, hey, let's walk through this thing. And then one day, I noticed a massive drop-off, like like significant. I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, don't panic. Of course, you know, you're panicking. And then I asked mm-hmm. some other friends of mine who have larger accounts, like, hey, have you seen this too? And my one buddy goes, hey, Instagram has changed. They want to compete with TikTok. I was not on TikTok at the time. Reels yep. are, are what you have to do. I'm like, I don't want to do reels. I don't like doing video. I don't like talking I, I, like that. How do I edit a video? I had no clue. But what I realized is that is that the 60-second reels are a great funnel into the into like the deeper cuts. Right, so it's like, hey, here's mm-hmm. this take on the SPC. Now, the SPC take was really hot intentionally because in our community, I didn't actually, I haven't seen that one. It's a very yeah. hot take. I say okay. fucking it, like it, it's a very hot take. And the reason oh, why, no. oh yeah, yeah, I know, I really go for it, right? I'm, really, I'm dropping the f bomb. But the reason why, in that case, I did that take is because I knew from my conversations in our DMs that we have many women who sure. were victims of abuse. So I said, you know what, I have to say maybe what hopefully some of them, I'm sure, are thinking, right? Yeah. So, so that's why we do the reels. It's kind of informative. It's also kind of trying to hammer home like these are not one-off situations. This is not. This is not just you know a lone wolf situation. There's connections mm-hmm. here. Also, here's a story you might not have heard about. But I've also tried to work on, and it's hard to, this week is what in last week is what happened in Buffalo. But I've I've tried to work on also doing reels of encouragement. Like, hey, if you're deconstructing, and you're freaking out. You're safe. You know, you can breathe. Um, On on Saturday night, we have someone who does a one-minute meditation in our stories every Saturday night. So we're trying to find ways to maybe beat the algorithm in that way. Um, But that's kind of like some of my – the mindset behind it is is we – I try and have conversations whenever I can, whether it's Instagram Live, whether it's a reel, whether it's a, 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 um, a story, whether it's a DM, or whether it's a podcast. And we try and use all of them to their advantage to kind of build this sense of, hey, maybe you're someone who is fed up 
with the white evangelical complex that we've grown up in, and you think that there's no way to still be a faithful follower of Jesus, and and all we are is we're just the airplane hub. We're just the airport. You know, I'm not claiming to be Joe Lumen. I'm not claiming to be an expert, you know, in liberation theology, but I can get you to someone who is. I can show you a podcast episode where we interviewed someone who is. That's kind of our, what we love to do. I love introducing people to other people, right? Uh, and, and, yeah. and that for us has been, I hate to use the term successful, but it, it's worked really well for us as well as kind of being um, at the forefront of any big news that that has dropped in the circles that a lot of us are engaging, whether it's politically or in this case, you're recording this in May, end of May, the SBC, the SBC report just dropped. I know my community is looking to hear what's going on. So I, I on Sunday, I, I read the whole thing, try to, you know, that's part of the work that we do as well. So it's, it's a very Big picture, we do a lot of things, but to, to really boil it down, there's three things we do. We do intro to the, we, we do theology, we hold space for people who have been harmed by evangelical culture, and we and we advocate for better paths forward by by um by advocating really for, to hold the church accountable, you know, and, and, and to try and find better ways as being committed to Jesus as we can. Yeah, I love that. Um I I also uh and like the clearinghouse approach, right? The the sort of um, I, I see a lot of my work as uh, choosing guests and helping them synthesize their work in a conversational format that will make it available to many more people. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like it's curation and it's and it's sort of synthesization and and popular communication, popular level as opposed to academic level right. communication. Right. Right. So there's a lot of overlap there. What I am, what I'm finding myself personally wondering about is how much to engage in sort of current event reaction stuff. Um, and I, I'm wondering uh, how helpful it is. I feel like I'm starting to think it's more helpful than I used to think, to, just to be clear. I'm not, um, this is not criticizing. Sure. Uh, and, and I, but I, the thing I worry about on the other end is like, am I contributing to, um, a, a nonstop culture of sort of uh, anger and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, indignation, you know, th- this kind of like there, there can be a, uh, a cheap culture of, can you believe this right. across social media from totally. every possible angle and everybody talking past each other? Um, you know, the, the outrage machine, the outrage cycle, um, and I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of doing that. I'm, I'm more asking a, I, I, it's a question I'm asking myself in general. Is there a way to engage in current events? Uh, because there is something like, ultimately, a lot of this stuff is like, there are two questions. Yeah. The first question is, who needs to hear what? Right. And then the second question is, how do you get them to hear it? Right. And those are not the same question. Right. You know, right. and like, ultimately, in my mind, wh- where I always end, um, where the logical end of the train is like, I should be producing movies <laughs> <laughs> or television shows. Like, that is ultimately where the largest number of people get the most stuff. Um, but I'm probably not suited to that. And so what's, right. you know, what's the other version? But, but like, how do people actually get? in touch with the thing they need to get in touch with. And that is where I wonder if perhaps I'm leaving something on the table by not responding more often to the news, to the kinds of things 
that people's ears are tickled about in the moment. You know, like I've been watching the Warriors in the postseason, uh, just tearing oh, it up yeah. on their way to the finals here, it looks like. And I am listening to reaction pods after games the next day, every time, multiple, right? So, and when I was watching Game of Thrones, I would listen to podcasts about the episode. Like, totally. I, I want to be in that thing for as long as it lasts. Totally. And, you know, that's a little different. It's fan culture. It's not quite the same, but uh, I do get a lot of messages from people when when I do do uh, episodes that are um, in reaction to, to current events. I'm going to be recording one uh, in a couple days about SBC as well mm-hmm. um, with Heather Griffin uh, because it seems it's very much wheelhousey for me as a spiritual abuse guy. Uh, anyway, all that is to say, this is stuff I've been kicking around and I was, I was curious to hear you kind of talk and, and think about it. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, it, it, there's like, like you said, there's a cost to everything, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of the first ones to respond to something, the cost is it interrupts your schedule. Uh, your wife isn't thrilled about it because you have two yes. kids. Um, <laughs> and, and also maybe because you're so quick, you don't have all the information in front of you that's and your take big. isn't fully accurate. Right. Yep. Um, and, and so that's one side. The other side in, in, in let's, let's narrow this to just for our conversation to the work that maybe new evangelicals do. I know when something like, like the SPC report drops, I know that there are a lot of people that we are working with and that we engage with that are like, for decades, my voice was never represented well. Yeah. And, and, and I look and I, I use this so lightly because I don't like saying this, but I, in this just it is what it is. I look to what Tim's going to say to see if he's speaking what I'm hoping he's, you know, I'm feeling kind of vibe. Right. And I'm careful with that because I really don't like use the term. That's influence. heavy. It's heavy. And it weighs on me often. I think about, I probably mm. think about, you can ask my wife this, you know, I think about new evangelicals and the people that we talk to. I mean, more t- more of the day than not. And I'm always thinking like, okay, based on, on, on the DMs, based on what I'm, on comments um, and the people that we're trying to work with, right? Am I, mm-hmm. I going to be able to, am I going to say something that like them go, thank you. Like, you know, for this long, I, yeah. I, I wish someone would just call it out, you know? And so there's definitely a, a part of that. Now, I, 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 I want to be clear, you know, there, some people will say, well, you're an influencer. No, I don't like that term. And I think one of the, one of the real dangers of a white guy, frankly, trying to rebuild um, something that isn't evangelical is that when you're steeped in evangelicalism, all you know is evangelicalism. And so you can rebuild the same thing with a different skin, you know, call it a social media account, call it a YouTube channel, but have the same culture underneath of, of branding the image of Tim, right? Or, or having the guy be the center of everything. And so we're actively working on ways to not do that, even though right yeah, now with, cool. our, with our funding, I only, there's only so much money to go around at this moment, but that's not the long-term vision. You know, I, I'm, my board knows, and this, there's almost like, a, almost like um, an, a, an eject button in place of, if this ever becomes about me and, and the brand of Tim, we have a problem and we have to stop. Like the board is, they're aware of that. Like I've told them mm. that, you know? Because honestly, Dan, I don't want to become Mark Driscoll. Like, like you listen to the story of Mark Driscoll, right? He didn't yeah. start out this serial, you know, abuser running people over. Like you can document the change as more fame, more power, more money. And I, I don't want to do that. Like I'm not in it, right? As you know, to become a millionaire. Like my wife and I scrape by. I play music on the side. But I think that that what I've realized is that especially women, there are so many women right now. Our Instagram account is 70% women who engage with us. It's a huge mm. divide. And I think there's a, there's so many women that felt so silenced for so long. 
and have felt, and I hear the stories, you know, whether it's purity culture, modesty culture, abuse. And I think that, 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 that when they see a guy saying it with, with the same amount of rage at times that maybe they have, they go, yeah. thank God someone is saying this shit because I am angry. You know, well, my pastor's still in power and, and he raped me when I was 15. Yeah. I am pissed off about that. And I go, yeah, you're right. You should be. That's fucked up. That guy should be out, you know? Yeah. So I, I yeah. think that that's obviously one aspect of what we do. But I, I think that I think that's a part of it that is not lost on me. You know, like I realize that whether I, I intended this or not, whenever I post something, especially on Instagram or TikTok, I am I'm representing some people who go, thank you for saying this because I've been begging for evangelical leaders to take this thing seriously or to have this view. So I think that's part of it. And the other part I'll say, and I'll stop ranting here, but since you asked, is that um, <laughs> part of the work that we do, the way I see it is we like to be that first room out of the basement of, of evangelicalism. So we go, listen, welcome to the safe room. You are totally safe. Okay, we can hold space for you. You can process. And also, we're going to shout back down at those people who are screaming at you that you're a heretic. So like, for example, right, like like the illicit uh, children of the world, the Tim Barnett's people who are like, or John Cooper's great example. You know, deconstruction is a false religion. I am going to push back. I'm not going to dehumanize. I'm not going to call John a piece of shit. Nothing like that. He's like you said, made the image of God. But I am going to push back and say, actually, John, your fundamentalist Christianity certainly is one thread of Christian thought, but you are really missing out on the house, the rich, massive, 100%. beautiful yeah. house of Christian thought. And when, and, when, and when people hear that, they go, oh, I'm allowed I'm allowed to be queer inclu- inclusive and still be a Christian. I'm mm-hmm. allowed to fight for anti-racist work or whatever, whatever else it would be, you know, maybe a more Pete yeah. view of the Bible, right? And still be a Christian. We go, yes, yes. So I think that's another, another big part of why we do the work the way that we do it. Because people need need to see themselves represented and, and know that there are other people who grew up like them, who were part of the system. I've been the yeah. drummer. You know, I know how the sausage is made saying, actually, I'm not going to help, you know, I use the term dismantling unhealthy systems, but I'm going to be part of that voice that's saying we have to do better, especially as a white evangelical man. So that's my answer to that. I I find that I find all that very compelling. Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here sort of the the wheels are only beginning to turn in (laughs) terms of like, okay, that's interesting. Where where do I see myself in relation to that? And I, I don't have answers. So I'm going to just, I'm going to percolate on that and, and we'll talk, maybe we'll talk about it when we see each other in the fall. I would love um, to. I mean, I, I live for these conversations and I, I think yeah. we're, again, I'm just speaking personally, this is not maybe in new evangelicals representation, but on a personal level, I've just realized like my parents are great people. They raised me really well. You know, it's not, it's not a, a, a knock on them, but I grew up very fundamentalist and just very ignorant of like, even, even the idea, you know, of like, colonialism that's a new term for me you know yeah. um you know um what's his mark charles a uh, book unsettling truths i read yeah. that like a couple months ago and was like doctor of discovery i didn't you know so as i'm learning oh, yeah. this i'm like well what how do i how do i live a life of, of repentance being in systems that i ignorantly was a part of that were complicit in some of these ideologies so i kind of view a lot of my work as like my way of repenting going the other way and trying to undo some of the yeah, you know, listen, it was unintentional on my personal end, but there's still an impact felt. Some of the unintentional work I've done at building systems that really perpetuate, you know, um, I'm going to argue and say a white supremacist or a Christian nationalist mentality. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of view a lot of my work as a way of repenting from that, trying to find better paths forward and also trying to listen as much as possible and, and take correction as well from people in other communities that maybe I 
you know, I offend or say something and I have, I have to say, I'm sorry. I have to repent it and learn to do better. So there's, there's a lot of, a lot of things I think tied into personal and, you know, on an institutional level. But for me, I, I kind of view this work as that, that's definitely one big facet of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I, what I wonder and worry about is I think I'm fundamentally convinced at an intellectual and, and psychological level that ultimately mm. To, to come up with the closest thing to the truth, like one, here's one thing that I have found that uh, the far left and the far right share, hmm. and they share it with fundamentalist Christians as well, hmm. is that truth is easy to come by. Hmm. I agree. I was raised with that view, yeah. uh, and that view is false. Truth is not easy to come by. Um, yeah. And, you know, for the... <laughs> Yeah, for the the for the far left, far right activists of the world, it is easy. Um, I think some people would say, "Truth is easy, man. It's all about power. Just look at the power dynamics. There you go." Right. And when I hear that, I think, you know what? That reminds me of. It reminds me of just those people don't have Jesus. So that's what it all boils down to. Just figure out who's got Jesus, mm. and it's easy. Mm. And then you and then you know what's up. And I think no, those are both wrong. Power is a part of it. Having Jesus, whatever we mean by that, is a part of it. But truth is not easy. It's not easy to know things in this world. And so ultimately, we need people of diverse constitutions, intuitions, personality types, uh, emphases, interests. Totally. We need the refining fire, yeah. the iron sharpening iron of that. And if we exclude half of the country or any society we will not, as a rule, come up with better stuff. We will come up with worse stuff that is better maybe than what came before it. Yeah. But ultimately, it won't be the final product or, or close enough to the final product. And then there will, it will require its own pendulum swing or something like that uh, to correct it. And this is kind of where I, I want to be more nuanced about there are different versions there are different flavors of broadly speaking, more left-leaning, more liberation focused, uh, you know, readings. Totally. So I celebrate when I see David French and Russell Moore standing their ground on a bunch of stuff that I think is vital. Yeah. Even while I, I shudder at when they just casually throw out terms like historical Christian Orthodox, <laughs> which I think, Oh buddy, you know, like mm -hmm. that is a much more complicated situation than you're letting on. But yes. I'm still very grateful. Um, I'm grateful for the other thing that they are bringing to the table and that they're persuading people on. And so I, I, I'm with you. My caveat is that I worry like, like there are social pressures in my circles on the left that resemble the social pressures I experienced in evangelicalism to toe the line, to use the right language, um, to use, to ask people, how's your walk to pray with the correct phrases to, uh, to use, like, I know what language to use if I'm trying to convince and even uh, currently practicing evangelical, I speak that language, but I don't speak it anymore in my private life because it was inauthentic. Yeah, uh, it is inauthentic for me now. I also know all the terms I'm supposed to use and the way I'm supposed to talk about left-leaning policies and perspectives. 
in those circles. And I'm hesitant to do so all the time. Um, and I'm, and I worry about the kinds of pressure that are being exerted and are those going to lead ultimately to liberation or are they just going to sort of, uh, you know, and of course it could be a little bit of each, are they just going to sort of whip up a choir into more and more of a radical frenzy where we just look for greater and greater purity tests to see who's in and we shrink the group and we don't persuade. And then therefore we don't get any reforms passed and we don't actually make life any better for people. We just surround them with more people who use the right language, but we don't yeah. change the yeah. funding of their schools. We don't change refugee right. policy. Right. We don't change any of these things right. because we haven't persuaded people. So right. in a three or four party system, it's actually different, but in a two party system, right. you got to have 50 to 53%. Right. You just have to. And there are some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, you got to get that. Uh, and so that's, you know what I'm saying? That's, I'm not disagreeing with you, but right. that's where my mind is pushing back a bit. It's a really fair tension. And I think, I think it, I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, I'm just going to, we'll use new evangelicals again, because it's all I really know. We, we have a very diverse group of people who engage with us pretty much daily in our stories. People from the BIPOC community, people from the AAPI community, uh, white evangelicals, some conservative, a lot of people are deconstructing, women, et cetera. There yeah. are times where I'll say something in a story. I turn a phrase. I'll give you an example. One time I said, you know, this is evangelicalism circling the wagons. Okay, I used it. Someone DM me, hey, just want to give you a heads up. Like that term is like pretty disrespectful to the indigenous community because it thinks about, you know, it brings them back to when that's what colonizers would do to protect the people. And I, I, I when that happened, Okay. I had two okay. options there. Okay. There are two decisions I, I, or two paths I can go down. I can either say, Hey, um, I think you're, I think that's too sensitive. I'm not going to stop using that phrase or because of the platform that we have, I could say, okay, this is the moment, Tim, for you to understand that a perspective that you hold as normal might to some other people not be as like neutral as, as they might think. And they engage with your dialogue. So are you willing, despite maybe your own personal feelings on if that turn of phrase is offensive or not, are you able to say, hey, thanks for the learn, and I'll just be more mindful publicly you know, of using that term? And that's what I did. And it was, the person said, no problem. Yeah. I just want to inform you. They weren't even angry. They just said, hey, I, sh I just want to give you a heads up. You know, and I said, wow, I never considered that perspective before. I never considered that angle. Just never considered it. And so that that's, I think, a good example of like, um, when it comes to the community that, that I'm a part of, the only way I'm able to do the work that I do, and I, I, by the way, this is not me acting, like this is me being genuine, is that I, I told myself early on, you have to be willing to accept correction. You have yeah. to be willing to say, I'm sorry. And, and, and even if at first maybe it rubs up against like, well, that's, that, that notion is ridiculous, you know? You have to be willing to say, before you, you give that answer, sit with it for a little bit and really think it through before you, before you might say, I don't agree with you on that. Uh, and so that that's kind of helped me with this where it's like, Hey, you know, I'm dealing with people in in the queer community, people in the trans community, uh, people who are from you know have have deep indigenous roots, and I am I am the newcomer to those circles, right? I am the one who has the least amount of perspective in those circles. So if someone from that from a group like that informs me 
of hey that that terminology like another example I'll, I'll give you one time I said that you know uh, this person is tone deaf someone's like hey just so you know I am deaf and I find the term a little offensive so hey you know what I'm not deaf and I would never think about it like that but because you engage with our community I want to respect you as a person and I will refrain from using that so those kinds of moments for me just help mm-hmm. me you know in the moment just say hey it's part of our community I can always learn I can always do better. Um, especially in a public way. So that's, that's how I kind of work through some of that stuff personally. You know, um, I don't necessarily feel like, 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 like I have to, but I feel like it shows that I respect people on the other side of the screen who maybe see me as having the platform and the, and mm-hmm. maybe the power here and saying, you know what, I'm willing to learn as well. Cause we're all on a journey together. And that helps me a lot. Yeah. I respect that. I think it's a perfectly plausible approach. I also think that every time we we publicly try and drop a word or a phrase out of the American lexicon in our case, it comes with a cost. Like every time, every time that we get rid of something like circling the wagons, another persuadable center right person loses their wings. Like, I think that there is a sense and I don't, I'm not saying that this is a good thing, but what we've gotten to right now is a situation where a pretty sizable chunk of the country feels like they're always going to say the wrong thing. And that has become something that those of us on the left have kind of become very adept at. And we have built up these skills of pretty quickly changing out our verbiage um, and, and getting the correct words used. Uh, and like, we're pretty good at it. We can do it. Uh, and it increases our clout on the left. But I do think there's a cost to persuasion when we do that. Because now, even if it's right, even if it is sort of morally right, there is a actual sort of real politic cost for votes. And so I tend to be more like, let's certainly get rid of the egregious examples that are obviously causing harm. But for instance, circling the wagons like is a criticism. So no one ever says, you know what, guys, it's really time to circle the wagons here. <laughs> circle the wagons is is to say you're doing it wrong. Totally. And and so settlers did it wrong, right? right like right. like yeah. we were a part of genocide and and colonial expansion, uh, the literally the worst chapter in American history. Yep. And I just don't. So I'm not sure. Like it, it's a cost benefit thing. Uh, it. Yeah, I may I may be able to reach fewer indigenous people if I use that phrase. That might be true. Uh, how many persuadable white people will I lose if I do make that swap? Uh, especially if I'm ver- if I'm overt and public about it. Now, maybe I just find a better phrase. Like you can thread the needle. I'm not saying it's like it's not totally determined that this will cost this whatever. But you know. I, I, I worry about pronoun stuff. I, I, I fundamentally worry. I, I use them. I do, I do my best to use everyone's preferred pronouns. Certainly clients, uh, certainly anyone I interview, um, anytime I'm speaking about or whatever. I do wonder ultimately, and I wonder if someone will be able to someday calculate this. I don't know if they will. What has been the political cost of that move? Uh, how many people are just sort of viscerally and subconsciously turned off by what they see as sort of cultural uh, conformity and silliness? Now, I don't think it's silly, 
Right. I'm not. I'm not arguing against the actual experience of, yes. of people who who change out their pronoun usage. I'm just. I. I do. I do think it's naive to think it doesn't cost the movement anything. Okay. So I. So let me just say that I, I think that that's a valid point. I think where I land personally is that I'm very much willing to pay that cost. Like to me, I know if yeah. it comes to and weigh it out, right? I'm like done. Yep. But you're you're primarily a landing place for people who need a landing place. That's what I'm picking up from you. That is an incredibly important service and place to provide. Totally. It's also not going to be the place that is most persuasive to yes. persuadable vote. And I think I'm I think what I'm figuring out is I see myself as I am more a bridge between yes. the sides, even though I'm obviously on the left. Right. But I am that's more what I'm passionate about, which is funny because I'm a spiritual abuse researcher, but I don't, I'm not as drawn to the sort of trauma, you know, I don't know. Like I'm, we'll, we'll see what happens. I may well, end up doing more work working with church systems than with clients. I don't know yet. I mean, my career hasn't really gotten going, but it's so, interesting. You know, I mean, man, I, I, are, do you have some time to, to parse this out? I, got, I, got five, I have like five, eight more minutes. All I have right, an interview I'll, in 20 minutes. So. All right, I'll, I'll be brief because this is really good. Yeah. But I'm yeah. wondering if obviously personality plays a big role in this. So on the Enneagram, yes. I'm not sure if you give you any clout or not, but yeah, I'm oh, a type gosh. six. I I'm, don't, but I'm okay, a loyalist, yeah. et cetera. So, you know, but <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just, I'm very much, I've always been wired to root for the underdog, even in my evangelical yeah. days, you know, um, on my strengths test for strength finder, I'm an includer, you know, and I, yeah. I, I, I yeah. think that that is plays a huge role for me because seeing now with these eyes, how much of my circles excluded folks based on things that maybe, yep. you know, I would personally find like, that's a silly thing to, to be upset about. Now, maybe I'm in the other extreme, so to speak, or I'm in that direction of, well, I'm going to do my best to 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 almost maybe prove to some people that not all white guys with beards who podcast, you know, are, right. are are fans of Ben Shapiro, for for example, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that also plays a role in this. Is just how I'm wired. I think for me, I've really found something that I love doing. Where it's like, like you said, and also Issa McCauley in the book um, Reading While Black makes the point that you need the variety of perspectives to help inform, you know, the, the best way to move forward. So for yep. me, leaving maybe some of those white spaces and 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 becoming a student. Of, of indigenous spaces and, and and black spaces and AAPI spaces, I go, whoa, I have so much to learn. So before I make any decisions, I'm, I'm always going to side with, I believe you, I will accommodate because I don't know any better and I want to learn at this moment in my life. And that, that's how I kind of land there. Uh, 100%. I, I think it, and I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, this is kind of a tongue in cheek question. Okay. So, but like how many accounts of opioid ridden uh, white rural America. Have you read? I've seen the documentary. Okay. You watched one movie. I watched one movie. I mean, I, I yes. I, okay. I and not, you've spent 50, 60 hours reading books from the other, like now I get it. We come from that white background, but I don't come from Detroit or Flint or totally. South Ohio. So I, and I don't mean like, I don't, of course, I'm not both sizing this. I, I'm I'm not sort of making any sort of white resentment argument here. I'm just saying that um, those people also vote, <laughs> and and we and our country has massively let down those communities too. And those communities are actually racially mixed, right? There, yes, they are more bound by economics and social class than they are by race yes. and ethnicity, right? And this is something that I think. That if we get overly, if we spend all our time on identity, racial, racial, ethnic, 
gender identity stuff, then we're going to miss out on class and socioeconomics. We're going to miss out on climate issues. We're going to miss out on other moral issues. Um, And what some people try and do is they collapse all the moral issues into one. Yeah. So someone, I mean, people have said this to me, well, climate change is about white supremacy. And I just think, man, that is a silly argument to make. Like, I'm sure there is an intersection. There's certainly colonial and imperial and industrial revolution stuff. And yes, that happened in European countries, but like the climate change issue, which right now the biggest problems are China and India is not about white supremacy. It is about economics. Right. Right, right. So, uh, and political will and all these kinds of things and technology. So, you know, you, if we try and collapse it all into one thing, yes. I think we do that as a defensive move so that we don't have to admit that we're seeing only part of the picture. Um, and then we, and there will be plenty of writers, thinkers, activists who are ready to serve up their content, whether or not they are, uh, whether or not it's true and whether or not they are qualified right. to tell us that we're in the right by collapsing it all into the one moral issue that we are feeling really strongly about. But all that to say, I do love your, I do love your analysis of your own personality and temperament. And I think that we should lean into that. I think we should not try and be someone that we're not. Right. Uh, my very limited, you know, Taoism exposure <laughs> right. would, would right. kind of, you know, don't try and reroute the river. That's right. a waste of time. Right. Uh, where do you fit in? I, exactly. I like the vocational idea where, where, you know, where my greatest strengths meets the world's greatest needs or, or loves or whatever the, that phrase is like, okay, what am I good at? What am I like? Okay. What does the world need? It needs a ton of things. It needs what you're doing. It needs what I'm doing. Yes. It needs what other people are doing. It needs What's what Catherine Hayhoe's doing, you know, you know massive yep. environmentalists of work. My, 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 yep. my, my final thought, and I'll let you go is, is I agree with you. And honestly, on an internal level, I'm actually very passionate about economics. Like I think about, about like, you know, really, I mean, yeah. uh, I think about uh, MLK and the poor people campaign, right? He was really like, hey, we have to be, this is an interracial issue. There are poor yeah. working whites who are being stopped by by capitalism and, and, yep. and, 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 and gross, you know, manifestations of that. I totally agree with you. And like you said, though, I think that at this moment, we've just found our lane and wherever I can intersect economics, I really plan on doing it, but at this yeah. particular moment, right? My my community, what they need is is more of this in this moment as we kind of for the first time expose ourselves to just the idea of decolonization, let alone like even going down the deep end of James Cone 100%. or whoever else, you know. So, hundred percent, man. I, I think you're doing good work. This has been an incredibly enjoyable conversation and useful for me. It's got my got my gears spinning in helpful ways. Hey, man, I talk about this stuff privately, too, so reach out anytime. I live for these dialogues. It was great having you. I'll make sure I share a link to your podcast in the show notes, and I'll see you in the fall probably for uh, uh, Trip Fuller's uh, beer. Was it beer camp? Theology beer camp. Yeah, 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 God Pod edition. So we'll we'll, we'll have a good time. Hell yeah. Can't wait. Talk to you soon. 